So if you think of the four cardinal virtues, prudence, temperance, fortitude, and justice, um, prudence is in the intellect, justice is in the will, fortitude and temperance are in the irascible and concupiscible appetites. So justice is primarily an act of the will, which desires to render to another what is his due. Um, so just as just as you are harmed on a higher level if you steal from me, you're also benefiting to a, to the a same degree on a spiritual level when you render justice to another. College is a bubble. We're here to pop it. The Albertus Magnus Institute is reinventing the academy, offering education that's as free as it is free. Welcome to the Magnus Podcast. With your help, we are liberating the liberal arts. Now, your hosts, John Johnson and Larissa Bianco. Hey, welcome back to the Magnus Podcast. I'm John Johnson, joined as always by the lovely Larissa Bianco. Hello, Larissa. Let's make small talk before we introduce our guest. Let's do it. We're so good at small talk. We actually had a great time at the Cersei conference, met a lot of amazing people out there, got to see each other in person along with a few other team members. What a beautiful thing that was. We did. You know, I've been working for you for almost two years and it took a year and a half before we actually met face to face. The times in which we live. Uh, So we were in the Cersei conference to honor uh, one of our board members, the great Dr. Andrew Seeley, who was given a Lifetime Achievement Award. A beautiful work. Uh, mm-hmm. I was really impressed with the work of your father, Andrew Kern, founder of Cersei Institute. And I did not know you were his daughter when I hired you. I genuinely did not. I hired you on your own merit. And But it was just a beautiful night. And so we're going to be making some announcements in the very near future at AMI that are going to really take our fellowship to the next level. And then a very big announcement about a new offering that I can't quite say anything about yet, but you're going to want to stay tuned. Everybody's going to want to stay tuned because it's next level stuff. And we're just so grateful for your support as fellows and benefactors that have made this little work possible for us, what we've been able to do with a very small staff, uh, thanks to the fellowship and partnership with great faculty members uh, the demand, we just can't overestimate it. And it's been really impressive to see. So a lot of credit goes to you, Larissa, for the work you've done on this podcast and everybody on our little team and everybody giving us money that helps a lot. So give us more money so we can do better things with it. Friends, our guest today is a fellow in the Magnus Fellowship and doing great work in his own right. Mr. Rocky Britton. Hello, Rocky. Hello. How are you? I'm good. Where did you, where did you get your first name? Is that your real first name? Uh, my middle name is Rock. Um, wow. And uh, my first name is Gary, but I've always gone by Rocky. That's uh, a great. That's a great move, I think, because Gary. Britton, I you know? completely agree. Yeah, Rocky Britton. That's just so hardcore. Now, why why Rock for a middle name? Where'd you get that? Well, that's funny. Uh, so my father is Gary Thomas, and my grandfather is Gary Dale. So I guess with my grandfather is picture poison. He goes by Gary. My dad goes by Tommy. And my dad wanted to name me after St. Peter, but he was a fallen away Catholic at the time and didn't want to be too 
hardcore Catholic and didn't, he didn't really like the name Peter. And so he named me rock. Awesome. That's a cool story. So you are a graduate of Thomas Aquinas college and Ave Maria graduate school. You mm-hmm. found yourself in the fellowship. You were a student of one of our favorite teachers, Dr. David Arias, mm-hmm. and you got a young family and mm-hmm. you decided to found your own classical school. What a doer of things you are. Tell us about that journey. Well, I can't take as much credit as saying I founded the school. It was I was a I was an original um, founding teacher and founding dean, um, but it really was um, the parents in this community. Um, they had their kids at a classical school that was non sectarian, and when certain things started to kind of creep their way into the school, and they had no really ability to say, no, we're not going to allow that. They said, you know, we need something better. And so I think it was in October of uh, 2020 that they started talking about it. And um, we were teaching in September of 2021. Um, So it's really, it's more, it's more than anything, a credit to the parents um, and the founding headmaster, Mark Langley um, and the board. Uh, But yeah, I was part of the founding team. Isn't it beautiful how providence permits beautiful things to happen with ease when there is a need and all it takes is a few people to say yes to something good. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. And just have some, you know, have some, um, some courage in in your faith. You know, I think of, uh, in John's gospel in the garden of Gethsemane, um, uh, I think we don't we don't think enough about our Lord's courage. Um, and it says that Jesus, knowing all things that were to befall him, went forth when the soldiers came, knowing all things that were to befall him, you know. And even when we don't know all the things that are going to befall us, if we know that what we're doing is um, the Lord's work and something that is going to enrich the lives of, of parents and children and, and strengthen the kingdom of God. You just go, you just got to go. Well said, man. And I think even in the context of John's gospel, that statement, knowing all things that would befall him would also speak to, you know, in its mystical and liturgical significance, all things that would befall him, the mystical body of Christ. So all things that yeah. would befall us as well. And how this church is sort of inspired and equipped to uh, supplement that courage in a beautiful mm-hmm. way that transcends mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. So our, our courage yeah. right now sort of gives him courage in the garden and vice versa. Yeah, it's amazing how that, um, since Christ had so many, you know, he had four different kinds of knowledge, you know, it is it is a divine knowledge, his beatific knowledge, his infused knowledge, his acquired knowledge. Um, and he was thinking about um, every single person that's ever lived or ever would live while he was on the cross and while he was in the garden, um, which means that our acts of love for him um, can retroactively console him on the cross. Right? Well said. Yep. Yeah. The economy, mm-hmm. of, not that we're going to spend the whole podcast talking about this, but the economy of salvation is so inexhaustible to contemplate that our prayers can transcend time and space and sort of affect past and present and his sacrifice affects past and present. Yeah. 
It's really Padre, wasn't it Padre Pio who's, um got a revelation while he was still alive that his mother was in heaven and he continued to pray for her. And he was asked why. And he said, well, it might be because of the prayers I'm going to do for the rest of my life. I hadn't heard that. That's beautiful. Yeah. 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 I've always found this really comforting. You know, I've, um, I've known a few people and lost a few people to suicide. Yeah. We have, you know, beautiful private revelations, especially from Vianney. They're really, they're really touching, but that, that your prayers now are faster than a speeding bullet and mm-hmm. definitely faster than a fall off a building. And you can move, move hearts retroactively. The Christ can move hearts retroactively mm-hmm. through prayers of his mystical body. Now, I think that's a really yeah. powerful thought to remember. Yeah. And just, and just like focusing on the, uh, what does it really mean when Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, I will give you. You know, um, a lot of the saints talk about, and I think we we fail to do this all the time, um, just take the Lord at his word. Right. You know, but it has to be done with, you know, with a pure heart and an unfeigned faith, as the as the epistle says. So, um, yeah, it's it's amazing. Well said. So mm-hmm. we are cooperators in his in his work, and that's evidenced by your work in the school. Uh, and and everything we're trying to do together, especially for education. I want to talk to you today about moral theology because you are something of a moral theog- theologian. You know, it's true that no good moral theologian would ever refer to himself as a moral theologian, right? It's kind of well, when you tell- said that is funny because the first thing I said is emphasis on the something of. <laughs> That's right. Yes. Yeah. So I'll go. I'll go ahead and say it for you. Um. But there's a lot of talk nowadays, and I think it's it's important to get back to first principles, especially on things like the death penalty. So mm-hmm. difficult moral questions. You know, it's not a pleasant thing to take somebody's life for any reason, especially a human. You know, I can't even kill a spider in the shower when my wife comes and says, get the spider out of the shower. And I say, well, I'll give it a nice home outside because I just can't. I'm very sensitive in that respect, and I just hate killing things unless I'm going to eat them. And then I think, well, these difficult moral questions about the state taking life for good reasons and um, yeah, et cetera. So let's talk about that, Rocky. When is it okay to kill somebody? Um, who in particular? The government, a private citizen, a soldier, a cop? Like It, it changes for each one. Whoa, whoa, a distinction. Okay, great. So yeah, let's let's go in order. Let's talk about the government. When is it okay for the government to kill somebody? So when St. Thomas defines law, uh, in the end of the Prima Secunda, he says that the law is an ordinance of reason um, promulgated for the sake of the common good from him who has care of the community. And so the primary end of those who are in care of the community is the good of the whole. Um, and so when I think in general, you can say, I mean, it, it differs case by case, you know, let's, let's leave like uh, mental disorders aside, people who are sociopaths or, you know, uh, have serious mental deficiencies that are inhibiting their ability to actually act rationally. But when the government has deemed and let's assume that they've deemed rightly that someone is um, such a grievous 
harm to the common good due to their um, crimes, that they have really by their own hand forfeited their own right to life because they can no longer be incorporated into the community. They're no longer able to be a part of the common good. Then um, I think the government has a right to not only protect the community from him, but also issue death as a punishment. Why? Um, because the principle, as you mentioned, is that the common good is um, infinitely higher than the private good. And those who have care for the community have to consider the whole first over the part. If that were not true, the draft could never have been permissible, right? How could we demand that young boys go to war if the whole was not infinitely greater than the part, right? That's the principle that we're acting by. And so if somebody is incapable of being incorporated back into the community, and they've also done such heinous crimes against the community that... um It's such that they have really, they forfeited their own right to be a part of that community. And if you think about justice being giving somebody what is his due, right? And we don't need to get into terrible details of horrible crimes, but you can imagine something just absolutely horrific that someone does to a family. Is it really just that they only lose their life? Like if getting giving him what is his due, doesn't he deserve the same thing? Shouldn't he lose his own family? You're like, we can't do that. We can't kill innocent people just because this man's evil, right? So in that sense, losing his life is, I wouldn't say a mercy, but it's its not even approaching yet um, balancing the errors and the and the harm that he's done to society. And, the, and because of the authority to the um, political ruler given by God, um, which Christ says to Pilate, right? You have no authority over me if it were not given to you by God. Um, they have a right to protect their citizens um, and the whole and to punish by saying, you no longer have a right to be part of this community forever. Well, so Rocky, we, oh, go ahead, Larissa. No, I was just going to ask, how do we determine what somebody is due? Because mm -hmm. you yeah, said that. Um, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, you said that he wouldn't, I mean, in a way, it's a type of mercy in that it's not nearly as terrible as what he did. Dying is not as terrible as murdering somebody in their family. So he's clearly mm -hmm. do something in return for his mm -hmm. actions. So how do we determine and who determines what? Yeah, I mean, it, that's it, where it becomes difficult, right? Because and there are, um, and a lot of people have a, have a problem with the death penalty, um, practically speaking, because uh, the political community is able to, uh, the government is able to make a mistake. And I'm sure it's happened that somebody was killed that should not have been killed, right? That's a serious thing. And it's not something to just say, oh, well, you know, mistake, right? Um, that's a serious problem. Um, what I focus on more is defending the death penalty in principle, as the church has always done, and it's interesting that people refer to the dignity of man as a reason to not kill them. When in Genesis, God says, whoever sheds the blood of man, 
by man shall his blood be shed because man was made in the image of God. So God lists the dignity of man as the very reason why death is a fitting punishment. Um, and so I, the practical reasons, they fall on the government. They fall on the tribunals. They fall on the judge. They fall on the jury. They fall on the evidence. They fall on the prosecutors, right? And so that's case by case. Um, but I think the important thing to focus on is uh, as Catholics, if we if we are true to the tradition and the magisterial teaching of the church, the death penalty has always been defensible in principle. That it's not wrong for the government to put someone to death for lawful reasons. Well, Rocky, it would seem unlawful to kill men who have sinned. For our Lord in the parable of Matthew 13 forbade the uprooting of cockle, which denotes wicked men. Now, whatever is forbidden by God is a sin. Therefore, it is a sin to kill a sinner. That's not a John Johnson original. That's an objection in Aquinas' Summa. How do you? How do we respond? Say it one more time. Oh, sure. I'm actually quoting uh, Article Two: whether it's lawful to kill sinners. Mm -hmm. So the argument from Matthew 13 would be that God forbids the uprooting of uh, the the tares among the wheat. Right? Let them all grow together. You know. Uh, and so whatever is forget, forbidden by God is a sin. Therefore, it's a sin to kill a sinner. Also, you know, mercy and all that stuff, right? Right. So Turn how, how do we deal with that? Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I would say that in that parable explicitly, I don't know how St. Thomas answered this explicitly, so he probably answers it much. I mean, I'm certain he answers it better than I will and in a different way. But when Christ says to not uproot, um the wheat with the weeds or the cockle. It's not because he wants to not kill the weeds. It's because he's a, he said, if you uproot the weeds at that time, you might also destroy the wheat. Right. And right. Say it again. Bingo. That's pretty much exactly what he says. Well, there you go. I mean, and he doesn't, he doesn't, uh, you can't take any one part of scripture on its own. So if you want to say in that parable, Christ is just saying you can't kill, um, then how do we reconcile um, Jesus saying that he's going to send the goats to eternal hellfire with wailing of gnashing and teeth? How do we how do we reconcile him saying, do not fear those who can destroy the body, but for those who can destroy the soul and send it into eternal damnation? And there he's talking about himself. Right. How do we. Right. Yeah. How do we reconcile that as him as the just judge? So I think there it's again. Christ in parable is talking about the common good. Yeah. It, I mean, I think you can make the argument in that case that vengeance is the Lord's, right? So he's he's sort of the one just judge who can make those just determinations ultimately. Mm -hmm. But Aquinas' answer here is actually splendidly practical. He says, uh, when the good incur no danger, but rather are protected and saved by the slaying of the wicked, then the latter may be lawfully put to death. Yeah. So if you can slay the wicked without uprooting the cockle or, or sorry, the, the wheat, then go for it. Right. So it has to be done prudentially. But I mean, I think St. Paul teaches this on a higher spiritual plane when he says the vessels of wrath in Romans, uh, the vessels of wrath are for the sake of the vessels of mercy. That's right. But how do you how do you reconcile 
the, shall we say, the new catechetical teaching, if there is such a thing, on the death penalty, when Pope Francis says the death penalty is inadmissible, whatever that word means, what do you do? What do you do? Um, I think we have to be very careful when we read uh, papal documents. Um, I think in the history of the church, it's very clear that it's one thing for a pope to be teaching magisterially and infallibly ex cathedra, and it's another thing for him to just be writing an encyclical or speaking on a plane or whatever it is. But the saints have always taught that whenever the pope opens his mouth, we owe him as much as we can, our submission of intellect and will. Um, And I think that means when it comes to things that appear to us initially as uh, incompatible with the faith, it's our duty as faithful Catholics under the vicar of Christ to find a way in which we can interpret it well. Um, And so I, I tend to read that document as him saying, it's part of his overall mission, it seems to me, to look after the poor and the needy. He's a Franciscan after all, right? So that's part of his charism um, to look Ooh, after. Francis? Francis? Yes. Jesuit. Oh, Jesuit. Sorry. Yeah, Jesuit. He's he's he, he's very, um, he has been very much concerned with the marginalized and the poor and the weak and the needy. Um, and so I just choose to out of charity for my Holy Father um, to say what he's saying is it's more in line with human dignity that we try to find a way to not kill. And I think that's supported in some documents. St. Thomas himself says that a human being in himself is not a killable object. It has to be in reference to something else, which is why the conversation about the common good is so important. A human being is not um, per se something that can be willed to be killed just as on his own. It has to be in reference to a higher principle or a higher order because of the dignity of the human person. So I don't think Pope Francis is, you know, uh, maybe he's calling our mind to something that we need to hear that we should try to be more, um, try to find better ways to handle, you know, serious criminals uh, out of the respect for the dignity of the human person, which is in line with Christ. You know, so what strikes me about that sentence, and I, I don't have it open or I'd quote it exactly, but he de- but he does say the word he says says the word inadmissible. He says the death penalty is therefore inadmissible, but that's a strange word to use. You'll notice he doesn't say the death penalty is malum in se; it's wicked in itself, yeah. right? Um, but inadmissible to what begs the question, and and he does he doesn't say that. So yeah. I don't know how to make sense of that. And it's sort of too ambiguous, um, at least as it's written, to to be declarative. Yeah, what's amazing about that is, um, and I'll be open and say, you know, that there, this happens with all kinds of theologians. And um, Pope Francis has said things that are very, can be very confusing, right? And you don't know what he means by it. And if you take it one way, it seems fine. And if you take it another way, it seems really bad. Um, I focus on the fact that in in every single problematic document in the history of the church uh, that was magisterial in any way, there's always a couple words which get you out of heresy. 
And that to me is just, a, <laughs> and what I love about that is I think it's the Holy Spirit, right? That there's always a couple things that are said or worded a certain way where the faithful are able to say, our Pope is not saying this. But I would not, if you're asking me point blank, if I would write the sentence that the death penalty is in itself inadmissible. No, I wouldn't say that. Right. Right. And and I think you have to take this question beyond its practical implications, right? Um, would we... Would the state be justified in imposing the death penalty, even if there were perfectly secure supermax prisons that could, beyond the shadow of a doubt, isolate somebody who poses a grave threat to the integrity of the state or the common good or the polis? Uh, even in that case, would there be a justifiable reason for the death penalty? What would you say? And I am briefly going to interrupt Rocky before he can answer and tell you a little bit about upcoming courses in the Magnus Fellowship. Starting the first full week of October, we are offering four eight-week courses. Friendship and Freedom in the Lord of the Rings, Part 3, with Dr. Helen Free. Philosophy of Man with Dr. David Arias. Rousseau and the Diabolical and Moral Imaginations with Dr. Emily Finley, an Introduction to Ecclesial Latin with Father Peter Hanna. All you have to do to register for these courses is head to the website and fill out the enrollment request form. You do have to be a fellow, so if you're not a fellow, head to the website today. All you have to do is apply, and then you can also fill out the enrollment request form right on the website magnusinstitute.org backslash courses. If you're interested, Dr. Emily Finley and Dr. David Arias have both been on our podcast recently. Just search our archives and you will find conversations with them. And previous courses taught by Dr. Helen Free have also been on the website. So all you have to do is look for her and you can get a snippet into what part one and part two of her part three course were like. Again, that's magnusinstitute.org backslash courses. And we hope to see you in the fellowship. And now back to Rocky. Yeah. I mean, like, have you seen, like, I mean, think about the Wild West. Have you seen the, the miniseries Lonesome Dove? Uh, no, sorry. Oh, yeah. No. But anyway, in the Wild West, when you got, you got good men who are honest and they're out in the middle of the prairie. Right. And they come across a homesteading family and they've been murdered and they come across two more and they've both been murdered. And then they catch up to those guys. And there's no way to conveniently um, deter them. There's no way to incarcerate them. There's no way to bring them to a sheriff. They're 150 miles away. Right. And they hang them on a tree. Right. That's justice. It's justice. Yeah. And so beyond the practical level, like there's many places in the world that don't have the ability to s totally restrain people and prevent them forever from, from killing again. Right. But I think what's lost and John Paul II, I think beautifully addresses this somewhere. I wish I had it to quote again, but, but he, but he says like, th there's an extent to which this is justice is always for the good of the person receiving it. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and, and the same thing 
is true for the contrary. When you commit an injustice, right? Let's say I steal your wallet. Well, who's got the worst? Who's got who's got the short end of the stick there, right? Who is it worse for? You or me? Well, it depends on what order you're talking about. Materially, well, me. Spiritually, you. Oh yeah. So ultimately, right? You're out a wallet you know, Costco card and a, and a debit card that you can get replaced and maybe a few bucks, maybe a wallet, right? You're out that, but I'm out the integrity of my soul, which is right. categorically worse. Okay. Yes. So, so injustice always harms the perpetrator more than the victim. Mm-hmm. Similarly, justice always benefits the recipient more than the dispenser. Is that fair to say? Um, again, I think it depends because so if you think of the four cardinal virtues, um, prudence, temperance, um, fortitude, and justice, um, prudence is in the intellect, justice is in the will, fortitude and temperance are in the irascible and concupiscible appetites. So justice is primarily an act of the will, which desires to render to another what is his due. Um, so just as just as you are harmed on a higher level if you steal from me, you're also benefiting to a, to a same degree on a spiritual level when you render justice to another. That's right. So think about it in well, the when room. I receive when I receive justice, you mean. No, when you give justice, when you give justice, right? So why would it be that you in transgressing justice against me are hurt worse, but when you fulfill justice, you're not benefiting more? So say you give my wallet back in remorse. That's a really good point. Yep. Right? If you give my wallet back in remorse on a certain level, you've benefited more than I have. I may have already replaced all my cards. You may have only stolen four bucks, right? Mm. My wallet may be made of plastic, but you have humbled yourself and spiritually willed what is right with regard to your neighbor in Christ. Seems like you've also benefited more, just as you lost more. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. What do you think, Larissa? I see you. Yeah, I'm wondering. I'm kind of questioning that because I'm wondering about an executioner or somebody who is killing somebody or a soldier who goes to war and they are justly killing in these instances, right? We can even say like, it's not a sin. It was just Mm -hmm. if we start with that premise, correct? Mm -hmm. But I'm also, I'm wondering, even if this is just, what is it doing to that person's soul as they're enacting that justice on somebody? What does it do to the soul of a human being as they kill another person? Like I think about executioners, as they kill somebody, they're doing something just. But every time we kill, every time we kill, I've never killed anybody, but you know what I mean? Like every time somebody <laughs> kills, they're they're fragmenting their soul in some way. First of all, or Larissa, you think, have you have you looked at a crucifix lately? What do you say? Yes. Like maybe a crucifix have, of Christ. Maybe you have killed somebody. <laughs> Dang, harsh words. 
Uh, true of all of us. true of all of us it, well so so i bring this up because so i i don't know about the catholic church but in the orthodox church if somebody goes to war and they kill somebody even if they're justified in doing it mm-hmm. when they come back they're barred from the table for however long the priest deems appropriate because they have in some way done something that even if it was justified or correct in to do it's still not natural for the human soul to take the life of somebody else we're not created to kill we're created to create we're made in the image of god so i don't know i'm just wondering does it do something to our soul when we do bad things or are you saying that be the justice is a good thing and so in that way we are actually is it unnatural to kill is that what you're asking is it unnatural to kill um i'm suggesting that Maybe. Let's think about the first murder, Cain and Abel. And mm-hmm. it's one of the sins that cry to heaven for vengeance. And you can't um, disregard the fact that the one who was killed was an innocent. Mm-hmm. Um, so I completely agree with you that it's it's a sin against nature to kill an innocent life. And I would also want to say that it's not the way creation was originally intended for men to be killing men. But it's another thing to say that um, when a man kills another man justly, that it's necessarily something that will destroy him or hurt him in some way. And I can't speak from experience on this, but we've all seen, we all know a World War II vet or a veteran or a great grandpa or great, great grandpa or whoever it was, who was really kind of troubled after the war, right? Mm -hmm. Of course, it's going to mess with you. I mean, how could it not? I can't even imagine, right? Mm -hmm. Um, That you, you took a life that maybe he died, took his last breath right in front of you. How could that not stick with you? Um, But I'm just, I'm suggesting merely that it need not be something that a soul carries with him um, as a sin against justice. Um, because Christ knows we have to live in this world, right? And you think about people saying, well, we're supposed to turn the other cheek. Well, when Christ was slapped in the face, he did not turn the other cheek. He defended himself, not with physical force, of course, but he said, what did I say wrong? If I didn't say anything wrong, why do you hit me? He didn't turn the other cheek the way people hmm. traditionally say, oh, you can never do violence because Christ said, turn the other cheek. Well, why didn't he do it when he was slapped? Um, I think there's there's room in this world to be a real Christian and sometimes because of sin to have to use force and be perfectly in line with the love of Christ. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So there is something natural about, especially a man's ability to do violence. Yes, I think, I think that's why, in general, we are bigger and stronger. Yeah, and 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 I, I think at a deeper level, right? There's a, there's an extent to which we're called to do violence to our to our flesh and to our appetites. Mm-hmm. That that is just basically move something out of by violence. You know, I don't I don't mean drinking a fifth of bourbon and you know giving your wife the business or something, right? course not yeah fasting or or you know that's right yeah yeah using your will to move something out of its general trajectory for a good right right? okay so 
and this gets dicey. So you've kind of established that there's an argument to be made that the state can justly take a life for the sake of the common good. What about an individual taking a life? Um, so that's what 64 seven is all about. Um, and it seems to me, um, from my understanding, and I think, uh, I've spoken with David Arias about this, which gives me more confidence. Um, he agrees with, I think, how I'm reading it, um, that a private, in St. Thomas's mind, a private individual is never allowed to intend death. Now, this gets pretty dicey because a lot of people say, how can you do something which you know will kill him and not want him to die? If you didn't want him to die, you wouldn't do that thing that you knew would kill him. Yeah, that's a fine objection. That's reasonable, right? I, right, you know, right. it cannot be just swiped to the side. I think the distinction you have to make is the one that St. Thomas makes in 64 7. He says, um, nothing prevents there from being one action which has two effects, one of which is intended, the other is not. Enter the double effect. Yes. And something so from Thomas, modern theologians to debate for years to come. Yeah, till the end of time, till we meet St. Thomas and he slaps us around with his with his wisdom. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but uh, I think what he means by that is sometimes you do an action, you choose to do a certain action and it and it bears on a certain object. So you, you know, say I. Um, say my son falls in the pool and he's two years old and he can't swim. And I choose to jump in the pool. What are the immediate essential effects of that action? It seems to me there are there's going to be two, at least. One of which, they're both inevitable. One of which is intended, the other is not. Uh, I'm going to get wet. Right? I'm going to get yep. wet. And I'm going to get closer to my son. Yep. Now, saying I don't intend it, what most people hear is you think it won't happen. No, I know I'm going to get wet, but it's not the formal account that is specifying why I'm doing what I'm doing. And because that action has two, at least two essential effects, I can intend one and not the other. And it can formally be one thing and not another. You say, what did I choose to do? I chose to get closer to my son. No, you didn't. You chose to get wet or take chemotherapy. Are the people who do chemotherapy, would it be a fair characterization of their actions that they're choosing to get sick and to lose weight and to lose their hair and to be irritable and tired? No, that's not what they're choosing to do at all. They're choosing to try to kill the fa cancer faster than it kills them. Right. And, it, it, you know, if you have like I got a CCW permit, right, and they, they train you. Thankfully, I've never had to use it, but they train you, you know, if if you have to use this, like why are you shooting? You know, and you, the last thing you want to tell the police officer is, you know, I wanted to kill him. You say I shot to stop the threat. Right. Yeah. And I shot until the threat was stopped. Right. And then you render aid yeah. or you call somebody actually, you never render aid. That's dangerous, but you call somebody to render aid, whatever, but you're never intending the death, even at this low civil level. Right. Yeah. So if you think of it, I think if you do, and that's why it's difficult is because, um, it's very possible and even probable that a lot of people in that situation might fail and actually do intend death, you know, and that's a moral failing. But it's also true that force stops force. Right. right. And if you have 
And I think that there's, I think St. Thomas puts a far greater responsibility on individual, private individuals to defend even an aggressor's life. Um, so for example, like say I'm walking down an alley and I see a man beating on a woman and I just run up and start stabbing him or something. Yeah. I don't think I have done what is required of me to uh, protect the dignity of human life before immediately jumping to lethal force. Right. I should have tackled him first, maybe reasoned with him, tried to fight him, block him. Well, maybe it just depends. Right. So let's, let's take a, take a more vivid example that, that might kind of brings it home. Right. So you're, say you're in a mall and there's a mass shooter just, you know, dumping rounds on little kids in the mall and you happen to walk out of the bathroom and you're carrying a firearm and you see him right there and he doesn't see you. You've got a second to decide if you're going to go up and end his life by shooting him in the back of the head. So even in the, even, and you know, it's certain like that's, that's how it would end. You can do it right then and there. But even in that instance, your primary end has to be stopping the threat to the innocent, not yes, taking sir. his life. Is that right? Yes, yes, even though, even when you're certain. Yes. I mean, and there, I mean, the, the principles you have to keep in mind are like, um, he's obviously declared he has lethal intent. He's declared it many times over. Right. And at that point, it seems to me like um, even the police force, uh, they're not asking questions when they find that person. He's going down. You know right. what I mean? Right. Um, but it's important that a private citizen's intention is not to take life. Um, St. Thomas is very clear on that. His intention has to be to stop a force of uh, a force with the only proportionate force that he has. Right. So it's got to be proportionate to the threat. Right. If an old man's in my kitchen, you know, with a walker and he says he's going to kill me and I shoot him. That's murder. That's not proportionate. That guy can't can't hurt me. And if he did, it would take a freak accident. I have to handle it somewhere else. But somebody with a automatic weapon who's firing randomly. um, I think a private citizen can intend to stop him with with. With guns, yeah. Okay, so let's take the classic example of double effect. You've probably heard this one, right? You're on the Titanic or something like the Titanic. You're on the, the Titanic 2.0, and yeah. there's a um, a big hole in the engine room, and water is flooding in. And you determine that unless you shut the engine room door immediately, the whole sink will, or the whole ship will sink, killing everybody on board. But you also know that in that engine room, are 20 good guys who are working in the engine room, but you don't have time to evacuate them. You have to shut the door thereby very deliberately doing something that, you know, will take their lives who are innocent and save the Titanic. Yes. Do you do it? Yes. Why? Well, let me ask you, what are the effects of shutting the door? You stop the threat of sinking the ship. What else? Um, you kill, you kill 20, 20 good dudes with wives and kids who are just working in the engine room. Which one do you want? Which one specifies why you're doing what you're doing? I want to stop. I want to stop the Titanic from sinking. There you go. Mm-hmm. There now, you what go. if there's 20 guys in the engine room and only like five guys up top? 
No. Well, that's another good question, right? And this is where this is where these moral questions get super hairy, right? Because you have to weigh what's good for the whole. Well, if you if you let it flood, is the whole thing gonna go down? Yeah, yes. they're they're all gonna go down. Yep. They're mm-hmm. all gonna go down. Yep. So even there, you're saying, I'm gonna let it flood because there's only five of us up here. But when I let it flood, we're all about to drown. What's the point of that? Right. What if I'm right? the only so, guy? What if I'm the only guy up top? It's just John Johnson. And like 20 guys in the engine. Room. <laughs> and there's no way you, you they can't save them. You, no, you got to close not it even, or die. Not even one of them. I got to close it or die because it's like way too far away. I, I just have to take one for the team and kill everybody except for me. Um, This is something that I realized a couple years back that I tell my moral theology students, um, not everything that can be done should be done. Not everything should be done that should be done should be done by you. Mm-hmm. Right. And not everything that should be done by you should be done right now. So there are difficult moral scenarios where I do think it's so hard to make a decision and it would put so much on the psyche and the and the choice of the human person that I don't think we should say they should do this. Right. I think in that situation if the man is of sound mind and he's virtuous and he's prudent um i think he could close it that's right and it, granted this scenario only works as an airtight uh pardon the pun uh <laughs> right uh but you know in all reality i'd be like getting some life rafts out and hoping for the best and hoping some of my buddies float up from the engine room at some point and you know whatever right and nobody's um, going to say, how could you not have, how could you not have closed it? Right. No one would ever blame a person for not doing that. Right. right? All right. You ready for a noodle baker here? Um, right. Larissa will like this. She's, she's at Orthodox. So let's take, here's the scenario. You are a married Melkite priest. Okay. okay. You got a wife, you're a priest in good standing in union with Rome. So yeah. all is on the up and up. Okay. And you're married to this lady and you're in the confessional one day. Some guy you've never heard before comes and makes a confession. And he says, father, bless me for I have sinned. Um, and he tells you that woman, father, you think is your wife was actually, is actually my wife. Uh, I be, I was married to her 20 years ago and we have a valid marriage and let me slip the marriage certificate under the, under the, uh, curtain here for you to take a peek at it. So, you know, it's all legit. And then otherwise makes a good confession with the intent to repent and everything. So under the strictest, under the strictest laws, right? You are, you're at ipso facto excommunicato if you so much as reveal his identity or demonstrate knowledge of what he told you in a way that could incriminate him thereby you have to go home to this woman who you thought all along for all these 19 years was your beloved wife but you know in your bones she's actually this out-of-towner's wife and you've got to continue as with business as usual, uh, even to the point of engaging in the marital act with a woman 
you know is not your wife. Under ordinary circumstances, you see, adultery, we would say, as Malamin says, never a good time to do adultery. Bad thing. How do you deal with this one? It's a good question. Um, and there's a bunch of things which complicate it because what a priest hears in confession, he hears as Christ, not as an individual man. I don't know about that. You know, Christ says, you who you forgive sin, who sins you forgive and forgive uh, will be forgiven. He also says, um, receive the spirit. Yeah, receive the spirit who sins you forgive will be forgiven. I give you the power to forgive sins. So a priest. No, I didn't mean to suggest that they're not forgiving. I mean, when they do are in the confessional, it's in virtue of the priestly character that they've received from Christ. And the thing which protects the, the seal is many aspects. But what I mean to say is if, if you got father, you know, John Smith. Yeah. He enters Elkite into priest. the. Yeah. Father John Smith, Malachi praise. When he enters into the confessional, whatever he hears he does not hear precisely as John Smith. He hears it in his priestly function. And that's why he, when he leaves, he can't say boo. However, I do think that he could do some investigating on his own as long as he thought what he said would not reveal anything about what the man said in confession. Um, he could ask his wife about it. And so no, uh, how could he ask his way, wife? Then she's going to be like, you know, what's the other guy's name? Bob Robinson should be like, Bob yeah, Robinson must have he'd told have to you be, that. He'd have to be real clever. He'd have to find some real clever way to, to, um, but I think the law is pretty strict. Like you can't do anything deliberately that might incriminate, you know, if same, like if somebody confesses to you, like father, I'm in the mafia and they're going to execute you as you walk to work tomorrow. But if you take a different route, they're going to know I told you and I'm a dead man. Like the priest would just have to walk down the road that he knew. Would. Yeah. Alfred Hitchcock, I confess. Yeah. 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 Right. No, I so, agree with you. you can't do you. I, I'm fairly confident that a priest cannot say or act in any way which would reasonably give someone um, knowledge or could reasonably be expected to give someone knowledge of who did the sin. Okay, but if Father John Smith withholds the marital act for long enough, his wife, Jane Smith, is going to know. She's going to know something's up. <laughs> That's true. Um, well, maybe. What does maybe, he do? Maybe John Smith discerns a Josephite marriage. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, I think he could. I think he could ask in the confessional that the man tell him privately because if he's told privately, Oh yeah. He asked and Bob Robinson's like, no, can't do it. Sorry. Um, Bob Robinson, that dirty dog. I hate that guy. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, I don't know canon law well enough to know if there's any loophole for him. Um, but I do know, and this is, People don't like to hear this kind of thing, but sometimes we find ourselves in horrible situations and we just have to live in it. Yeah. Right. Sometimes that's just true. You know, like uh, you take take an easier example, because that one has a bunch of semantics that I don't know that, you know, like what could he actually do? But if you just take a hard example, like uh, of a couple's married for 15 years and then 
the marriage is pretty good. And in year 16, uh, the guy, the husband, you know, gets paralyzed from the waist down, you know, and loses his job and starts drinking a bunch and starts abusing his wife. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Now, civil divorce is permissible within the church. Right. But sometimes you just got to say, yeah, your life is hard. You have to try to love your husband and protect your children anyway. And maybe you need a civil divorce because he needs to go get help, but you can't just abandon him and get remarried. You well, know? A, a civil divorce would not in any, in any way um, compromise the vows. Like the integrity no. of the vows could not be dissolved if they were not real, at all. real vows no. in the first place. Yeah. No. That's, a and that's, what's that's what's crazy about modern annulment is that um, the annulment process is a purportedly a um, a rigorous process by which they determine the evidence and say this marriage actually never happened. Right. Now, here's a tough question. Is it possible for the church to say this marriage never happened and that they're wrong? Right. It's a great question. You know, so like somebody gets an annulment. There's a buddy of mine actually who just recently went through an annulment and he thinks it's nonsense. Mm -hmm. Is he is he still married? You know, yeah, in, in that case, your buddy would do right to act as if he was, even if his wife wanted nothing to do with him. But he could still honor, true. honor his vows in her in her absence. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, yeah. the church, the church is not even the one who makes the marriage, right? That's it's, right. It's the it's the husband and wife, or the man and the woman who who validate it and, and exchange vows. Yep. Um, and so, if you say it happened. The church 20 years later is is the is the tribute the court tribunal for the church 20 years later able to just make it not happen? I don't think so. Yeah, no, <laughs> I agree. And and I've had people ask me similarly, well, how do I know I'm married if these annulments are given out like candy in so many cases? You know, and granted, there's times when there's like obvious <laughs> lack of form, I guess would be the uh the requirement, but but in times when it's a little more ambiguous, you know. So act as if you are, I guess, is the answer. Lar Larissa, That's what called, do you... Is, sorry. sorry, go ahead. What do you call it? A what marriage? Putative. It's it's basically just saying it's... Um, you have to, in matters of these things, you have to act um, as if it were valid until you know that it's not for certain. Putative with a T? Yeah, putative, yeah. As opposed to a punitive marriage? Well, Which yeah. some of us have. Oh, just kidding. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Peter. No. Cool. Larissa, what do you do if your uh, father, Bob, John Smith, what do you do if your father, John Smith, like in the face of this Bob he's, Robinson character? He's the one whose husband, whose guy came and said, you're married to my wife? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's father, father Bob Smith or John Smith. Oh, man. I don't know enough about, I guess, Catholic canon either, but can he you're give him a penance that like requires maybe that's manipulative he but... could do that he could give like a uh, a penance that's like you know you have to uh well actually no you can't you he can't actually give a, you can't, can't give a penance because yeah. it's against the sixth commandment well wait, 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 wait. well so what? priests are priests are not allowed to forgive uh, sins against the sixth commandment that are with respect to them. So I have a priest friend one time, you know, and, um, 
a woman came in and confessed um, being in love with him. Oh, interesting. And he said, I cannot forgive your sin. I cannot do your confession. You have to leave. Right on. That's related to that's a prudential prudential prudential. Well, think about it. What if a priest, as priests can do, fall into sin and he's just sleeping with a woman and every time after he just absolves her? Well, that's nonsense. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. That's just gonna be a disaster. But he would still he would still be bound by the seal to respect her confidentiality in that. I yes, I think so, yes. Yeah, Yeah. could he tell could he tell this man he needs to go to a different confessor and then let the hopefully the other confessor will say you need to clear yourself, like you need to talk to this woman. Yeah, Yeah, I mean really the 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 contra sextum here wouldn't really refer to that priest. So he could absolve the guy and he could even give him the penance of um you know, well, I guess you can't give a penance that would incriminate the penitent, right? You can't do that, but I also wonder, and I don't know about this, I'm just thinking about it for the first time, but isn't a sexual matter with respect to your wife a sexual matter with respect to you? Yeah, but it's not his wife. That's the plot twist. But it's just some some floozy who was pretending to be his wife this whole time. Well, also, how does that work? How did they get Jane married without Smith. getting married? They called her not get a marriage certificate. Yeah, yeah, she was just she was a fraudster. She was actually married to this guy Bob Robinson the whole time, and then she she pretended to be married to the Honorable Father John Smith. Okay, here's the question: What? What? Why is Bob? Why is Bob telling Father? Does he tell him why? Um, yeah, he just tells him he's like, he just it's slips it in. He's, ma- he's making an otherwise very good and. Holy confession, and he just needs <laughs> Father Bob to know. Sounds like he doesn't. Well, this I shouldn't say this probably, but it sounds like if he was confessing because he wanted to be forgiven for his sins, he would do something about his sins. Yeah. So I mean, there I, might, there I, might, there might or might not be a, a real penitent to absolve here, but the the fact remains that Father John Smith can't divulge anything he heard in confession whether or not it's a it's a good confession or a bad confession. Father John Smith is probably going to say I can't absolve you, get out of here, you jerk. But he still can't divulge what was revealed. But well, the fact he, is that, ahead, that No, I was going to say you he still knows. And uh, once yeah, he knows, you know he just, he just that you've been committing adultery, you have to stop committing adultery. He can't live in ignorance anymore. He knows. He has to stop. You can't yeah. unknow what you know. So you're, even if you're not supposed to. Well, yeah, so but you, it seems you like know, what but you can't saying act on. is if he if he has relations with his wife, he's committing adultery, and if he doesn't, it's going to cause a problem. And if it goes on long enough, um, she he's might gonna, start asking, "How do you know? Oh, why yeah, are she, you doing this?" And then he's got to figure something out. He's got to come up with an excuse. He's got to lie. So I think. I mean. I think the simple, in some way, there's a simple answer to this. He has to try to find a clever way to to bring it to everyone's attention without divulging how he found out. Um, and if he can't, then uh, uh, he's a sad sack of potatoes. He's in trouble. No way. I mean, think about that. Let's take that to a more realistic example. So say Father Mike at your 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 homegrown Catholic Novus Ordo Parish, here's the confession of uh, 
Russ Thomas, the head of his parish council. And Russ Thomas is like, yeah, father, I've been committing adultery with so-and-so, whatever, ordinary confession, you know, and father, uh, father Mike knows that Russ Thomas is not a suitable head for his parish council. Father Mike surely cannot then go on this sort of creative adventure to try to remove Russ based on what he knows. He's got to pretend like he doesn't know it. I think you can say um, a priest is not, actually nobody is allowed to act in private, uh, in public matters with knowledge that they have only privately, right? So the reason why priests are allowed and should probably more often, but um, are allowed to refuse communion in front of everyone at mass is only because the sin is obviously mortal and it's very public. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, so if a priest knew privately, you got your Russ, Russ Thomas, Father Mike, yeah. and Russ, Russ comes up for communion the next day, he has to give him communion. Yes, he does. Right? Because That's got to hurt. That's got to hurt. Oh, yeah. He cannot act publicly with what he only knows privately, especially if what he knows privately is under the seal of confession. Right. So to be honest with you, I mean, this is a, I think there is a way that he could try to find it out in an organic way. But at the moment, it sounds like Father John Smith is, uh, he's, he's on the cross. What a predicament for Father John Smith. Okay. And I think, you know, we probably beat this one to death, but, um, which is also justifiable in certain cases, but why don't we open this up to the crowd? I'm actually curious. At AMI Fellowship on Twitter, tell us, what should Father John Smith do? Let's see if anybody's actually listening to this podcast who's also maybe on Mr. Twitter. Arius is, maybe Mr. Arius will, will answer. I think we should we should we should also phone an authority, you know, ask the ask the audience, phone an authority. That'd be great. Um because it is a really tricky moral predicament because you know you would you you want to say that uh adultery is one of these things that is just mollum and say there's never a good time to do it and then you think well what about this case you know and and Actually, i think well what, what about this yeah i don't mean to interrupt but like i think there's probably a tribunal thing a court thing like what if he went to the tribunal and he said can you look up um like what if you just said, can you look up mine and my wife's previous, you know, uh, our marriage, our marriage certificates, and they pull hers up and they find another one. Maybe, right? but say, I, I think the argument us? would be you'd have to you would have to have had a reason to do that apart from what you heard in the confessional, lest it incriminate old Bob Robinson. Yeah, I, I heard a priest tell me one time that what he knew in the confessional he does not know as himself, but as Christ. So I really don't know how to get around that one. Yeah, it, it's a common issue. I think is slightly unrelated, but you know, a lot of people say, "Well, the priest absolves you in persona Christi," and he really doesn't. Like, there's a sense in which the priest is in persona Christi throughout the day, throughout his life, when he's eating breakfast, when he's using the restroom, etc. Uh, but really, the priest is only in persona Christi properly in the in the more specific sense when he is consecrating the eucharist uh and that's what do you, what do you mean by that i mean no um the power to forgive sins is christ's and christ's alone 
and to whom he gives it. That's what the Pharisees accuse him of. They say, well, the power to forgive sins is only God's. And and Jesus says, and to whom God gives it. Can't you say the same thing about confecting the Eucharist? No, confecting the Eucharist, that's precisely the point, is that the priest utters these words in the person of Christ. This is my body. This is my blood. In commu- in in the confession, rather, the priest is not in persona Christi. He's, I think the best way to put it would be he's in loco dei. He's in the place of God, in the office of God. I think I see and, what you're saying. And yeah. that's why he says, I absolve you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But that's a big difference than saying, this is my body, this is my blood. Sure. He actually no, no, has, no. Yeah. has to operate in persona Christi to consecrate the Eucharist. Confession it's an official thing. It's like an officer giving you a speeding ticket. It's not Officer uh, Todd Jones. How many? How many stupid names are going to think of for this podcast? It's it's the officer acting in the name of stop in the name of the law, right? Yeah, I I totally see your distinction. I would just sorry. Go ahead, Larissa. No, nothing, nothing. Go ahead. I would hazard a distinction that you can use in persona Christi in two different senses, at least two different senses. You can, and yeah. Certainly, what you're says- saying. Yeah, certainly when you're when he's saying this is my body, that's different than when he says I absolve you. Um, but when they absolve, they're acting in and through their priestly character that they that they have from Christ, which in another sense is acting in the person of Christ. Right. I mean, that's what we that's what we teach people. Right. You're meeting Christ in the confessional. How could we say that if the priest is not? Trying, you it's not that you are, but like I said, you're meeting Christ in that sense. Anytime you you meet a priest, right? There is there is a general sense in which the priest is always in persona Christi, like by the the, the virtue of this indelible mark that he's received and his calling. And when they see you, they see me, right? But there's a more specific, proper sense of in persona Christi that's only operative in this unique place of the Eucharist, which is a beautiful. No, I, I totally agree with that. I just think there's, yeah. um, I don't want the level to be, there's the Eucharist and then there's everything else the priest does because forgiving sins is something only Christ can do. Eating a sandwich is not something only Christ can do. So the way the price, the, the priest is in persona Christi when he's, when he's at lunch with me must be slightly different than when he's forgiving my sins, even if that's even different and lower than when he's confecting the Eucharist. I don't want to say forgiving sins is the same as the priest washing his hands or saying mm. to me on the street. No, it's, certainly the effect would be um, a, a lot more uh, profound, especially to the recipient. But as far as the, uh, you know, the officer acting, the agent, the agent acting in the confessional is definitely the priest, but he's acting by the authority and office of God. With the power of, of Christ. Oh, Yes. But he's not really acting with the power of Christ when he picks up a stick. It depends right? because why, I guess. But yeah. No, I just mean he doesn't he doesn't need Christ in the same sense to pick up a stick. God moves all things and all things that are in motion. But the priest cannot forgive sins without without the power of Christ. He's an instrument in in that respect in a way that he isn't when he's scratching his beard or putting on his clothes. That's that's correct. I think, yeah, absolutely. A, a priest as Father John Smith can't just forgive sins, right? He can only do so in in a certain office. Yeah, right. With with his grace of state. Uh, awesome. Well, that was super fun. Any other noodle baking moral scenarios you want to bat around? 
There's one, um, and this is another one I was talking about where I said not everything that can be done should be done, um, or maybe even should be done by you. Uh, you know the trolley one, of course. The the tro- Oh yeah, the trolley with the the operator's got his son on the. On yeah, the, yeah, yeah. Go ahead, say it. I, I vaguely remember it. Well, you just remove all possible culpability from the man who's in control of the lever that's going to switch the tracks. The train's been derailed by a maniac, and there's people there. Maybe there's people on the train. Maybe there aren't. But he's tied, um, you know, ten people to one side of the track, and he's tied thirty to another. Um, what do you do? Are you allowed to switch it? Can you switch it? Which one do you switch it? Are you do you have to switch it? What happens when maybe one of the ten is your son, or what if? It's just one in a hundred, but the one is the Pope or the president or your wife or, you know, are you allowed to change the direction? It's already going to kill one group. Can you change it to the other group? Thereby deliberately killing a certain group, but only for the, with the most proximate end of saving the group you're saving. Is that right? Well, so the way you put it, um, I think in these questions, we have to be very careful. I know you didn't mean it, but when you say deliberately killing so that already we have a problem for a private citizen. You're going, you're going to, yeah, you are going to intentionally take the lives, but only as a subordinate effect to your primary intention of saving lives. But if you intend to take lives, you're a murderer. So you're going to intentionally switch the track knowing that a consequence of that action will result in the loss of innocent life. So you're not yeah. going to be deliberately doing it. I think there's a sense in which, and there are many factors, so I'm not saying in every single case you can do whatever you want, but doesn't switching the track divert the train? Yes. It's going this way and you move it and now it's going that way. You diverted it. That's yep. a different. That is a different intention. Than yep. deliberately killing, right? That's a, that's a very important distinction. Thank you for catching that. Yeah, because it's so ingrained. But yes, that's right. You diverted. It's why can a mother? Why why would I be able to jump in front of a a train, a, a car, or a bullet to save my son? Right. To block. Or why can the guy jump on the hand grenade because he's blocking? Right. Or or a mother with an ectopic pregnancy, right? Yes. There's, yeah. a, there's a justifiable reason to remove a fallopian tube. Right. Even though you know that that will result in the death of your daughter. Right. Yeah. Right. But your intention is not to kill the daughter. Well, and it, but it matters. And this is the thing that people miss is that the act, the object that your action bears upon um, changes everything. Right. Why can they remove the part of the fallopian tube around the fetus, but they can't take the fetus out of the fallopian tube? Why not? Same effect. Mom is saved. Baby dies. Correct. Right. Because the the medical act terminates in the baby. And Even if it were possible, I don't know that it is. Say it. Say it's possible. Yeah. Yeah. Imper- right. impermiss- not permissible morally. Right. Right. Name right. a single other medical act that doesn't terminate in the sick patient. Yep. Yep. Right. Well said. It needs to terminate in the organ that is the problem. And the fallopian tube belongs to the mother. This is why you could take a woman can get a hysterectomy when she's pregnant very early, right? Because the uterus is her organ, right? But you can't just take the baby out, even if that were possible. Right. It has to terminate in the organ of the mother. 
Yeah. I would say in most like moral Twitter debates that, that you see the, the primary, uh, the primary sort of thought process that's lacking is an understanding of double effect and distinctions. Yeah. Right. I think that's how we go wrong, you know, with all these social media debates and media debates. Well, so most this, people just fall yeah. under consequentialism. Yeah. Tell us what that means. Um, it's, it's basically what I just said about the hysterectomy. I mean, the, um, the salpingectomy that with the fallopian tube versus just taking the baby out, um, that your intention is in your mind primarily to save and the effects that are happening are basically the same. And so you weigh the good of the action, um, based on the consequences that come about. And so they would see no difference between removing the fetus immediately or taking out the part of the fallopian tube that contains the fetus. And in reality, um, that's missing a fundamental distinction about human action because the actions that we do terminate in objects and the morality of them, St. Thomas says in uh, question 18, article four, um, I think it's in the reply to the third objection. He says the goodness or evil of our acts is the proportion of our action to produce a certain effect, right? So, well, that means grabbing a fetus out of an organ of the mother is different than grabbing an organ of the mother. Which happens to contain a fetus. Right. It's a different act. Yep. It and, has even to. Grab, and even grabbing the organ of the mother would have to be justified, not by convenience alone, but by a threat to the whole, right? Yeah. Yeah. You can only and take gets, out that organ if leaving it in compromises the whole. So that gets right back. You go full circle back to the the common good or the whole good over the good of the part. Like sometimes it's beneficial to excise a part for the sake of the whole. Gangrene is sort of analogous to capital punishment there, right? Absolutely. Why is cutting off your arm not mutilation? Right? Yeah. Why is it formally considered a totally different species of action? It's actually considered a good medical act in a lot of cases. Right. right. Because, because the part exists for the sake of the whole. Right. And that and that's why, you know, I hate to, you know, dog anybody who's asked this sort of question, but but probably the, the dumbest question you could ask in, in any, any moral theology discussion is, is it a sin to X, Y, Z? Right. I heard, oh man, I shouldn't even say this because it might out the person, but it's okay because I'm not Father John Smith. But somebody at the Cersei conference asked in one of these, you know, drop your questions in a hat and the panel will answer it. They said, like, is it a sin to send your kid to public school? You know, and and the answer with any is it a sin question is always depends, right? It is is it a sin to watch child pornography? Depends. Are you on a jury? Are you are you an investigator uh, who collecting evidence? Right? Even is it a sin to uh, commit adultery? Well, it depends. Are you Father John Smith uh, with this serious moral dilemma? Right to be determined. Um, it also so, depends what you mean by the question. Exactly. What you right. mean by, is it a sin? Do you mean, is it objectively evil? Or do you mean it's always a, a moral culpability for the individual when they do X? Those Thank are two you. different things, right? Thank Those are two different things. So if somebody says, is it always a sin to lie? In some in some way, you can say yes. But when it comes to the moral culpability, you can never say absolutely 100%. Anybody who ever says they have absolute 100% certainty about those kind of moral, political, practical matters, apart from private revelation, is overstepping. That's which right. Is the reason we can 
Christ does not let us judge. <laughs> That's right. And 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 it's it's precisely a huge problem to equate that to some sort of relativistic moral argument. Right? Yes. Yes. You're not just yeah. saying, you know, to, you know, well to me it might be and to you it might not be. Uh you're but you're you're judging every action in its totality of prudential circumstances. Cuz then you also have to ask the question maybe um they were in not a right position morally to kind of do what was right in that moment, but are they responsible for the formation of their conscience? Yes, they are. So there's, there's at some point where somebody's going to be culpable for something, you know, unless you have, so even if, even if you would judge that sin from this particular person far less harshly, you still don't know. Um, but that, and that's how you get out of that relativistic kind of mindset is, why do they think that's okay? Right. And conscience is a genuine source of morality. It's very low on the totem pole. Uh, but the problem is with that conscience argument is that the worst of the Jesuits have sort of perverted this to reduce every moral question to, well, what does your conscience say? You know, should I rob a bank today? What does your conscience say? Should I be married to somebody of the same sex? What does your conscience say? Um, granted, that's naturally impossible, right? So conscience is important, but it's I think the lowest or the second lowest source of morality of the seven, right? What well, it's a, it's a huge, I mean, and the kinds of things that get taught that way, it's a misunderstanding of what it means when people say you have to always follow your conscience. There is a sense in which that is very true, but moral theologians, as far as I've seen, are very clear. You're only obliged to follow your constant conscience when you feel absolutely certain that you have to do something or cannot do something. But when there's doubt, now you're obliged to seek counsel. Right? Right. Maybe you think it's okay, but you also don't, you're not quite sure. And even preceding the doubt, you're always obliged to inform your conscience so you don't have these kinds yes. of issues. Right. Yeah. So, so above, so let's just break, break it down. Like this is a point of dispute. I have a certain friend in mind who is going to, who's going to tell me this is wrong, but that's okay. Cause he might be right or might be wrong. But uh, I think Lagrange says this, right. Mm -hmm. The highest source of morality is eternal law, mm -hmm. which is God himself. Subordinate to eternal law is the natural law, which is God himself as revealed in the created order. Mm -hmm. Subordinate to natural law is divine law which is the natural law that is explicated through special revelation that's not necessarily evident in the natural law. What's interesting is the next one subordinate to divine law is civil law. Mm -hmm. But you would think that what's actually subordinate to civil law would be on top, but that's ecclesial law. Okay. And subordinate to ecclesial law, I think is like conscience and then individual human prudence. So, but the civil ecclesial is kind of interesting. Why is civil a higher source of morality than ecclesial? Well, it depends um, on what you mean by higher. So I don't mean to interrupt because this, this, when you order something, um, you're putting something before something else, one thing before something else. Yeah. And there, so there's five. Different, yeah. So there, but there's five different senses of priority, right? That mm -hmm. Aristotle lays out. You could be prior in time. You could be prior in being. You could be prior in knowledge. You could be prior in nobility. You could be prior in causality. So when mm. Gary Grange orders those, mm -hmm. right, what sense is he putting one above the other? Because as soon as, because he does that in beatitude, 
right? His I think so, yeah. Uh-huh. His commentary on the Prima Secunde. Um, in what sense is natural law above divine law? Because there's certainly a sense in which it's below it. But you could also think of a sense in which it's above it. It's definitely in, prior in time. There was natural law before there was divine revelation through Moses and Christ. So it's prior in time, right? Might even be prior in being in the sense that man existed before God revealed himself through Moses and Christ. But is it prior in nobility? You yes. Know? Yes, of course. Uh, and that, I think I think it is. I think it's prior in nobility. I think it's also prior in gravity. So classic example of natural versus divine. Natural law indicates that I cannot marry another man. Yes. Right. And that's, that's not, I don't, and this is where we go, where a lot of people on a certain side of the argument go really wrong when it comes to the issue of gay marriage. We say, well, it says right here in the Bible that God created Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, right? That's a terrible argument against gay marriage because you're appealing to the wrong source of morality. The best argument against gay marriage is that evidently, these two body parts cannot fit together in a felicitous way, right? Without yeah. So right. I think it's I think you're absolutely right to point out that we make a mistake um, to argue against certain atrocities merely from our faith. Um, so, for example, I'm not pro-life because I'm Republican. I'm not pro-life because I'm Christian. I'm pro-life because killing babies is barbaric. And you know, killing is barbaric because of natural law. Like you yes. need a special divine revelation to sure. teach you that. Sure. So in that sense, sure. natural law is, is prior. Um, but how many, you know, so, okay. So natural law tells me I can only marry a woman. Uh, got it. But why not, why not get, you know, 10 or 12 of them women, right. And marry all of them because divine law indicates, you know, I need a special revelation to say just, just one of them. Well, see, even that's confusing, right? Because think about that. Um, St. Thomas says that you can, God can give dispensations to, God can give dispensations to go against second secondary precepts of the natural law, but not the first. So the fathers defend, I lost you, I can't hear you, by the way. Oh, I was just thanking my wife for bringing me lunch as I was oh. talking about marrying only one wife. So I had muted myself. That was a good call. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, <laughs> St. Thomas says that God could have given a dispensation to Abraham, um, Isaac, and Jacob to have multiple wives because um, communion with your wife is a secondary precept, whereas the good of the children is a primary precept, which you can't transgress. But Bingo. Says he, you can't give a dispensation to women for the same. That's true. And there's there's a there's a reason for that. But what's I think you're burying the lead there. What's more important is that God could have never given a dispensation for Jacob to marry Isaac. Uh right. Of course. No, right? of course. Yeah. So, of course. so divine law can never trump natural law. So in that sense, natural is prior. And then so back to the civil and ecclesial, you can't imagine a time when the local ordinary would issue a decree saying. In Lent, you know, all Catholics can run stop signs on the way to Mass, right? Right. So ecclesial law can never trump civil law as ecclesial law. Is that well, fair? 
Well, what if it kind of, I think it depends on what you mean. Um, what if the civil law said you have to abort every baby after two? Aren't we obeying the church when we say no? No, because an unjust law is no law at all. So exactly, that's exactly the point. And so far as the civil law contravenes natural law, it's no law at all. So even when the True. civil law yes. says gay marriage is now legal, I'm still over here like there's no such thing. It's like you might as well make it legal for me to sprout wings and fly across the country. You know, it's just not real, right? Stop saying it's not right. Start saying it's not real because yeah, natural yeah, yeah. law, no, natural law it makes it impossible. It ceases to be a law in as much as it becomes contrary to reason. That's true. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Now that gets a lot harder to parse at the lower levels, you know, of, of yeah. uh, you know, if, if I tell my daughter it's time for bed, you know, and uh, in, in all prudence, if I were to make the best decision, bedtime were five minutes later and she were to say to me, well, dad, an unjust law is not a law at all. You know, um, <laughs> it doesn't, yeah. it, it's, it's a lot harder to deal with at that, at that more minuscule level, but at the level of natural law, it's usually pretty evident. Because yeah. that's what natural law no. is. It's evident in the yeah. created order. I agree. And I and I just I think that uh, divine law just um strengthens what man tends to forget due to natural law, due to ignorance and sin. Right. Um oh, that's only, well said. Yeah. Right. The only thing about the Ten Commandments that isn't available to natural law is the word Sabbath. Right. Say that again and say un unpack that for me. What I mean, I said, the only thing that's not available to natural reason in the Ten Commandments is the word Sabbath. Um, yep. It's available to natural reason that there's a creator, which St. Paul teaches in Romans one twelve and is definitively declared by the church. Um, and it's a, once you know there's a God who is responsible for your existence, it's also available to natural reason as a sub-virtue of justice that you should render him worship. But there's nothing about that that says Sabbath. Right. But everything else is natural law. Right. But God. That's well yeah, said. Go so you could say that all the Ten Commandments are sort of God like reminding us of what's evident in the created order through natural law and then sort of giving us this bonus divine law to really keep us yeah. on track. Yeah, it's a it's a repromulgation of what we could have known and should have known. Um, but the Israelites were in a bad way. They were in bondage and slavery for 430 years. They were worshiping false idols. They were committing incest. They were killing each other. They were lying. They were stealing. They were cheating. They were weren't worshiping the right God. You Could know? you say the same thing about adultery, though? It's like what in the natural order tells me I can't have multiple wives or you know share a body with multiple women. I think to the extent that you know. Um, so I think in order to know that marriage is a lifelong union between one man and one woman, you need to know two things. One, um, sexual relations of their nature make children. And two, raising children is a lifelong commitment. Yeah. When you know that, you know it's just me and you, right? And you know immediately, and maybe this is a, a secondary truth, but no man in his right mind could say, if I take another, I will not be divided and I will not be able to give to the one what at that moment I'm giving to the other. My time, my money, um, my affection, my understanding. Like he's nobody could reasonably say that. 
True. And really, when we think about it, Rocky, let's be honest, who would want multiple wives? It doesn't sound like a good idea to me. Oh, my gosh. Can you imagine? That's why I feel bad for um, I feel bad for married priest. And St. Paul teaches it explicitly. Right. He says a man has got to be concerned with how to please his wife. And he's contrasting that. And same thing with the wife. We're not picking on, you know, our wives here. We're saying a woman's got to be concerned with how to please her husband, take care of the kids. And you just have less time for God. It's just a fact, you know, Um, less time for God in at least an overtly explicit manner of prayer and adoration or something like that. But um, now you double that up. I'll pass. I will too, Rocky. This has been such a pleasure. Can't wait to meet you in person. Um, thank you for your time today. If anybody's in the Colorado Springs area and wants a great place to send their little kids to school, check out olwclassical.org for the Our Lady of Walsingham Academy. Uh, high school. High school. Sorry. Oh, not little kids. High school. I got that wrong. That's right. It was a Chesterton Academy. That's awesome, man. Running the school is going great for you. Not yes, running it, whatever you're doing. Yep. Yep. We're we're entering our third year. We just had our first graduating class. A couple of kids off of the seminary, one going to TAC. We've about doubled, so we're doing good. Awesome. And for anybody who's listening who wants a lot more great discussion in their life, like this one, but maybe not as ad nauseum, you know, a little here and there. Uh Magnus Fellowship, awesome classes. More launching early in the fall. And again, very big news. Please keep us afloat in the meantime. And we're going to shock you with some amazing new offerings very soon that we're finalizing the roadmap for. So magnusinstitute.org for more. Larissa, you're the best. Thanks. You bet. Anything you want to say to wrap us up? Yeah, just... Stay tuned for all all our fall courses. They will be announced very soon. And just a sneak peek that Arius is going to be teaching a course for us. We mentioned him earlier. So if you haven't taken a course with David Arius, the most mild mannered, understated, humble guy and great, great teacher, you really should. Would you agree? I mean, Rocky, was he your best teacher ever? Let's be honest. Um, I had a lot of great teachers. Mr. Arius is one of the best Thomists that I know. He's someone that um, pretty much every time I have a question about St. Thomas, something that I think I'm not quite getting right, I call him without a doubt. Um, he's a great man, father of 14. Um, he is absolutely one of the best teachers I ever had. Yeah. What a stud. Yeah. David Arias is great. All right. Thank you, Rocky. This has been a pleasure. MagnusInstitute.org for more. See you guys later. Thank you. God bless. The Magnus Podcast is a production of the Albertus Magnus Institute, Incorporated. To learn more, way more, by becoming a fellow today, visit magnusinstitute.org. Copyright 2023, Albertus Magnus Institute, Incorporated. All rights reserved.